Welcome to episode 140 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm Kate Rowland, family physician and associate professor at Rush University. I'm Gary Forensic, a general internist and professor of medicine at Michigan State University. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. I have two little historical nuggets that happened on this date in history. Uh, the first happened in 1901. A 63-year-old school teacher named Annie Edson. You know we love our teachers because they provide us with the school, the the the, the, the tools and the skills in order to be able to become the wise adults that we grew up to be. Well, maybe not the case with Annie because she was the very first person to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel, and she survived. The other piece of... <laughs> can't wait to hear what the other one is. <laughs> wow, Henry. We've plumbed the depths of American history for that one. Yeah, well, the other one actually is more inspired by Kate's volunteer activities with veterans groups. So on this day in history in 1921, uh, the unknown soldier was selected for entombment in Arlington. So thank huh. you, Kate, for all of your work. All right. Well, thank you, Kate. And thank you, Henry, uh, for those tidbits. On this podcast, we highlight poems or patient-oriented evidence that matters. If you want to get them all, subscribe to Essential Evidence Plus. You'll get a poem every day in your email, plus a great newly updated and refreshed um, reference for primary care physicians. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. You can get CME credit from the Illinois Academy going to IAFP.com. Click on their education webpage and find our podcast. This week, we got four topics. Magnesium for the prevention of cerebral palsy. Amoxicillin challenge testing in kids with possible erroneous penicillin allergy. An ACP guideline for colorectal cancer screening. And bypass versus medical treatment for symptomatic carotid or cerebral artery disease. Kate, let's talk about magnesium. Yeah, this is a great primary care week. We got a lot of different topics here. So this is a randomized trial uh, that sought to answer the question whether perinatal intravenous magnesium prior to preterm birth at specifically at 30 to 34 weeks would improve neurodevelopmental outcomes in kids at two years old. And this is a good question because previous studies have shown that intravenous mag sulfate given to pregnant patients prior to preterm birth at less than 30 weeks improve neurodevelopmental outcomes. Although I will say I spent a lot of time combing through this evidence, and it's a little shaky. Mostly observational studies and the randomized trials that are out there are not robust. So only one of the three major ones that I found showed a benefit for either neonatal mortality or a future cerebral palsy diagnosis. A systematic review that included both those observational studies and the RCTs found a number needed to treat a 41 to prevent one of those outcomes, either death or a cerebral palsy in, in kids in later life, but it only included those same trials. So it's a pretty small pool of evidence overall. But obviously, cerebral palsy is a condition worth avoiding, and magnesium is reasonably well tolerated. It's been included in prenatal and, and perinatal care for a long time. So it's currently an ACOG committee opinion to give magnesium to pregnant patients who are at imminent risk of early preterm delivery. ACOG is kind of vague about how early is early because this evidence is so mixed. So not a very robust evidence pool, as is true with a lot of perinatal care. 
Um, and so it, the, the evidence has not really been there to tell us exactly which patients does this apply to, who should we be giving, how much, how often, what are the protocols? So the unclearness of all this previous evidence led to this trial that I have today. This was an RCT published in JAMA, I think, uh, conducted to assess magnesium sulfate specifically given prior to preterm birth at 30 to 34 weeks. Uh, consenting pregnant individuals, there are about 100, sorry, uh, 1,400 of them, enrolled at 24 hospitals in New Zealand and Australia. If birth was either planned or definitively expected within 24 hours. Uh, So usually that was a cervical dilation of at least four centimeters. And if they had no specific contraindication to MAG. I believe this trial uh, excluded patients who were using MAG to treat severe preeclampsia. So if they had another indication for MAG, they were excluded. They used a four gram bolus, uh, and this was a similar protocol that was used to some of the other trials. Others used used that loading dose followed by uh, infusions over time. There were, uh, out of those 1,400 consenting uh, patients, there were more than 1,600 surviving children, so so several of those were multiple gestations. They underwent neurodevelopmental assessment by a a pediatrician and a trained outcomes assessor as close as possible to two years corrected age. The primary outcome was, as I said, either death or cerebral palsy diagnosis at that two-year assessment, and they found that it wasn't very different between groups. This is a not significant difference of uh, 1.6 versus 2.7%. A couple of important limitations to this study. This was much, much lower than the anticipated rate. The anticipated rate was uh, 9.6%, so they did all of their power calculations expecting a significantly higher rate. So ultimately, the study was not powered to detect a 0.1% difference. They were expecting more like a 3 to 4% difference. Uh, so that's interesting for several reasons. They, re- they also said that only about 80% of the kids were included in that analysis uh, for that primary outcome because they, uh, they, they couldn't get all the kids in for this developmental assessment by a developmental pediatrician. Although I think it's important to note that the outcome didn't change when parent report was included. So they had the parents fill in this very structured questionnaire asking them sort of similar questions about development um, and some other things. And that, again, that rate uh, didn't change at all when they used these formal questionnaires given to parents. Um, a number of secondary outcomes that also didn't change. Um, but one thing that they flagged as a possible concern is that kids who got the magnesium were more likely to have behavioral scores that were considered to be clinically problematic. These need to be correlated to actual clinical uh, outcomes and not just these standardized scores. So again, what we think of as the difference between you know significant, but are these clinically meaningful? Um, an interesting study, unexpected null results. It's not really going to slam the door on what I mentioned before was somewhat vague um, and unsatisfactory evidence, but uh, an interesting study, and I think this will create a little more controversy. Henry, what do you think? Uh, so I've really stayed on top of this literature since the last baby that I delivered graduated from medical school a year or two ago. So, um, <laughs> so um, I'm a little bit out of water on the clinical application piece. But, you know, you think about um, cerebral palsy, it's probably a multifactorial set of um, risk factors. And, and so, the, you know, one of the questions naturally comes is why magnesium and what's the underlying theory behind it? Or is it just purely on um, observations that uh, people have played around with? But then the next set of questions comes is you know, if, the, if they only got 
a group of individuals where the rate of cerebral palsy or death at combined endpoint was about uh, a tenth of what they had anticipated, did they target the wrong group of individuals? And whether or not, uh, the, the second question is whether a single dose is appropriate and whether, and as you point out, the timing. So I think there's still just a lot of unanswered questions out there, at least in my mind. Gary, what's your internal medicine opinion about this? Yeah, if, if Henry's last uh, delivery was, uh, what, 24 years ago, mine was over 40 years ago. So, yes, it's totally relevant to internal medicine. But as I was looking at this abstract, one wonders whether or not the age differential actually is one of the variables. Granted, uh, Kate, you mentioned the, the evidence for less than 30 weeks wasn't robust, but nevertheless, it is a recommendation. So is there a at least um, gestational age differential between less than 30 and over 30 with regards to how this might be, um, uh, you know, potentially effective uh, for preventing cerebral palsy? Yeah, that's exactly what the study was hoping to be able to say, mm -hmm. okay, definitely 30 to 34. Um, and I think it's probably still in question. Uh, and that's happened, I should say, with some other things that we used to do. So surfactant, you know, that used to be like the one thing that we really knew. Um, and now even that evidence has sort of been, you know, pushed to sort of narrower and narrower, um, you know, categories of, of preterm delivery. So, so as far as an internist, is that 30 week cutoff kind of an important um, milestone, if you will, in terms of the fetal development? Yeah, I mean, literally every day, every every week yeah. of gestational age. But uh, you know, to the extent that we can, we can say precisely, you know, which is to say, we cannot say precisely like how old is the is the gestational age, except for certain cases of IVF, when we can say pretty pretty precisely exactly so, when did that. So all I have to add is that when I was at Michigan as an intern for family medicine, they stuck us in the NICU, for God's sake. And so I'm in the NICU, and they were doing an ECMO trial, and they would put a curtain around the bassinet, and then they would either give surfactant or pretend to give surfactant, and they would always play Beach Boys music, you know, surfing, surfing safari, <laughs> as they were doing it to mask any sounds that might have occurred. Mm -hmm. That's all I got. But I do have a quiz for you all. Um, which country... Other than the U.S., includes colonoscopy as a primary screening option for average risk adults. A. Canada, our neighbor to the north. B. Germany, where I just spent a couple of weeks. C. The United Kingdom. And D. Switzerland. Stay tuned. Henry, your turn. Amox. Yeah, so Kate, you just recently did that iconoclastic study about amoxicillin and mono, and uh, this study kind of gets at maybe one of the potential legacies of that amoxicillin rash, if you will, that we've labeled these kids and, and on into adulthood as being penicillin allergic, when in fact it may be an idiosyncratic kind of rash or not. So this was a paper by Gateman and colleagues in CMAJ um, Open, the Canadian Canadian Medical Association Journal. Um, it's one of those catch-up that the new journal that we've been uh, 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 covering in poems because it was published in 2021. But it asks whether or not an oral amoxicillin challenge is safe and reasonable for distinguishing the erroneous penicillin allergy. So uh, the author of this poem points out that about 10% of adults and children are labeled as having penicillin allergies.
allergy. And yet when we do actual formal testing, only about 20% of those that carry the label actually are truly penicillin allergic. But we can't really do the kind of allergy testing that um, would normally be involved to confirm this. So these authors tried to come up with a slightly different approach. And this is kind of an interesting, I'd call it a case series maybe. Um, They identified 99 adults and children that the authors decided were at low risk of having a true penicillin allergy based on history or using a uh, clinical decision rule. And what they did was they um, they had everything set up for safety. They had epi and uh, diphenhydramine available in case there was an allergic reaction. And right there in the office, they administered oral amoxicillin suspension. Now, it was a weight-based uh, uh, a parameter 50 milligrams per, uh, uh, for, I'm sorry, 45 milligrams per kilogram for kids and up to 500 milligram total dose. And what they did was they gave 10% of the dose, watched for 20 minutes to see if anything happened. You know, did they die? Did they wheeze? Did they sneeze, et cetera? And if they didn't, then they administered the remaining uh, 90% and watched them for an additional hour. And then they asked them, oh, by the way, over the next week or so, let us know if anything happens in a delayed fashion. What they found was that of those 99 um, individuals where they had data, only three had a mild, and they had a a mild reaction during that um, time. And all they had to do was just administer some diphenhydramine. All of the rest reported no problems during that subsequent uh, duration. So this is one of those things that we could potentially do in our office, especially, you know, if you've got a got somebody with endocarditis where you are thinking about long-term penicillin treatment, uh, this might be an important consideration for us to, to, to do it. It's certainly a lot simpler than trying to send them off to an allergist. Mark. I was just looking up that uh, clinical prediction rule, and it's called the PENFAST score. And it says for adults with a history of penicillin allergy, uh, five years or less since the reaction, anaphylaxis or angioedema were reported, or there was a severe cutaneous reaction, or treatment was required for a reaction. Now, this was mainly in adults, but they did use similar questions. So I just wanted to highlight what some of those risk factors for a true allergy in particular anaphylaxis, angioedema, or kind of a severe reaction that required treatment would be uh, higher risk. So great study. What if they have to call their malpractice uh, insurer before they do this in their office? Uh, yeah, you know, Henry, I, just a, a quick point. I, I'm not sure this is easier than sending them to an allergist. I might call that into question. <laughs> try, to set up, try to set up your office to have, accomplish this with all of the, you know, social. And it's more accessible, perhaps. Well, yes, okay. Yeah, I mean, we used to do this. Uh, I mean, actually, we still do this pretty routinely. So anybody who gets a, a vaccine, you have to be prepared to to manage, or any other kind of medicine that we administer in the office, you have to be prepared to manage a reaction like this. I think that's a CDC requirement that you have to have, you know, epi and other forms of, of allergic uh, reaction mediation on hand. 
Um, I, I was also laughing when you said referring millions of adults, you know, who who might be allergic for testing isn't practical. I'm like, I don't know. I work in an academic medical center. We sure think it is. Uh, <laughs> I, I do know that it's uh, there's a, a group of anesthesiologists on campus who do uh, a lot of pre-op sort of more, you know, more in, involved pre-op testing. And they actually do it pretty routinely, um, you know, for people who have that remote history of, of penicillin allergy basically because it messes up so much um, and it's it's so much u- more useful to have the ability to use uh, penicillins and cephalosporins when they when they do pre-op care. So I, I have seen a lot of folks being um, tested for, for penicillin allergy and they do use the PenFast tool. Cool. Good stuff. Okay. Well, it's my turn and I'm going to talk about colorectal cancer screening. So this is from uh, by uh, Kasim, who uh, heads the guideline group for the American College of Physicians, does a really good job of guidelines. Tim Wilt is also on it. I was on the USPSTF with Tim. He's at Minnesota VA, I think. And uh, it's called Screening for Colorectal Cancer in Asymptomatic Average Risk Adults, <clears throat> a guidance statement from the ACP version two. So this is a guidance statement and a focus on how to best Observe, best avoid, I'm sorry, premature death due to colorectal cancer in average risk adults. Now, no screening test has been shown to reduce all-cause mortality, although when you look at the data, at least the um, direction and roughly the magnitude of potential benefit is the same. The guidelines are based on a review of existing guidelines, and then they also talk about the discrepant recommendations. Now, the most recent one is the USPSDF, which recently updated their guideline and now recommends starting at age 45 with a B recommendation, and at 50 is an A recommendation. So that's a, a new new information based on, a, I would say, a new interpretation of old data. There really isn't any new data other than maybe some increasing incidence in younger persons. All the guidelines except one for who are from North America, all were less than five years old. Uh, they reported <clears throat> no conflicts of interest in their group, and they included a patient rep in their working group. So they looked at the benefits and risks and costs, and it's important when you're talking about screening to weigh all of those things, including in particular harm since you have an asymptomatic population. Um, the guidelines continue to suggest beginning screening at age 50, not 45, and stopping at 75 or earlier if patients have a life expectancy of 10 years or less. They suggest not screening asymptomatic average risk adults between 45 and 49. And they say at the very least, if you're going to do that, have a careful discussion about the potential benefits and harms. The modeling from the USPSTF showed that it was approximately one fewer colorectal cancer death per 1,000 people screened beginning at 45 rather than 50. So the potential benefit is very small. And actually, that modeling is now being called into question based on a recent large randomized trial. With regards to which test to use, they recommend FIT testing uh, or a high-sensitivity guaiac fecal occult blood test every two years, colonoscopy every 10 years, or FlexSig every 10 years plus FIT every two years. They specifically recommend against screening using Coligard or the stool DNA-based test, CT colonography, capsule endoscopy, or using blood tests to detect colorectal cancer. So bottom line, this updated guideline has two new recommendations. One is to ignore the USPSDF recommendation to consider screening at 845. And the other one is to ignore their advice to use any of seven screening tests. And I will say, I think the decision to recommend an earlier starting age uh, surprised me. And I feel like 
fit and colonoscopy are probably the two best uh, studied and best uh, best tests out there. Uh, you can certainly throw in flex sig as well. And then whenever we've done exercises and had people vote on what was the best balance of benefit and harm and cost, Cologuard, frankly, ends up last every time. So not great. And fit usually ends up first. And I'll just add one last thing. If you look around the world, almost every other country uses fit as the primary uh, screening mechanism. Gary? So I didn't see the word ignore USPTF in, this, in these records. <laughs> yeah, I didn't exactly. I just, just wanted to be clear. <laughs> these are your people, man. These are your people. Yeah, my, yeah, my keeps. That's right. They're internal medicine docs. Yeah, no, I, I, this is uh, interesting. I, I, you know, haven't looked at this in great depth, but, you know, the, um, you know, the top line uh, statistic is, is that colon cancer incidence is starting to increase in patients under the age of 50. And I don't know to what degree that increase in incidence actually affected the USPTF. But uh, I was surprised, um, and I think I understand perhaps why, maybe Mark, you can comment on this, that the uh, Cologuard, the stool DNA test, um, is not recommended by the ACP, but it's one of the three stool-based recommendations by the USPTF. And I think you mentioned earlier that the cost, uh, it was part of the metric for the ACP, whereas cost is not part of the metric for the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. So the the, 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 the um, Cologuard test, I just Googled it it's like 600 bucks, right? And so cost obviously is going to be a huge factor with regards to population-wise implementation. Whereas a fit test, how much does a fit test cost, Mark? Four bucks, three bucks, something like <laughs> it's that. It's like cheap. It's like at most 20. In the life. Yeah. So the Cologuard is almost as expensive as a colonoscopy. Almost. And I'm wondering well, whether or not cost... Sort of was, a backyard colonoscopy maybe, but yeah, okay. Yeah, it was one of the... Was one, that's right. <laughs> the person who's not yet uh, been uh, you know, certified as being uh, competent, uh, they need the reps. Uh, anyways, I, I just don't know whether or not that's that's part of it. I, I think it has a lower specificity, but a higher sensitivity. So you get more mm -hmm. false positives with this dual DNA test also. So. Yeah, higher sensitivity, lower specificity than compared to fit. And it actually incorporates a fit test as part of the Cologuard. And that's part of the problem is the lower specificity means more false positives and therefore more follow-up colonoscopies that are needed. So yeah, yeah I think the other thing is that it requires a, a, a complete bowel movement. It's not just a smear. Yeah, I mean that's it, a dancing box for a reason on TV. <laughs> I was giving the lecture to my uh, colleagues in Germany. I gave a couple of lectures on uh, cancer screening, and I played the videos of the TV commercials for Cologuard, and they were just dying. They were like, "Really, you Americans? <laughs> what do you do?" Anyway, Kate, well, I've been talking too much. Your turn. Sorry. I don't Sorry. know that there's anything left to say. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm good. You've taken my dancing box comment uh. that I was never going to make. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, I just await the uh, I, I await the fight between the uh, the various primary care uh, guideline issuing bodies, and uh, I will say I wish that uh, that family medicine did more of their own uh, guideline issuing. I think we have a perspective that that should be out there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the current practice is to endorse or not endorse guidelines that from others, in particular the USPSDF, and I'm not. Sure. I'm honest. I'm not sure they're going to endorse this change. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. And, and I'm involved on one of the committees if that um, was was the decision to not endorse this lower age, just based on the evidence. But we'll talk about a little bit more when we get to the quiz question. Um, Gary, I think it's your turn for the 
last poem? All right, the last poem. So I'm going to give a little bit of background here. So carotid endarterectomy and extracranial intracranial bypass surgery, so I'll talk about that in a minute, are both used to address cerebrovascular conditions that can lead to stroke. Uh, these bypass procedures we're used to thinking about in other vascular areas, such as coronary and peripheral vasculature, are commonly used and typically improve clinical outcomes. In the brain, however, the use of bypass is generally reserved for lesions that are not amenable to correction with endarterectomy or perhaps stenting. Uh, earlier trials looking at this bypass, so they basically either take a scalp or some other extracranial type of an artery and kind of embed it past an obstruction that is not, you know, as I mentioned, correctable with your more, um, you know, with, with uh, endarterectomy or stenting. Um, but previous trials have, have essentially been negative, but uh, there has been over time improvements uh, in the uh, technique for stroke prevent for uh, patient selection as well as the techniques of the actual uh, procedure. And so, so the real question here is, is that with these improved techniques, are patients better off? Now, with that as background, I love these trials in which medical therapy is compared to surgical therapy for very important and specific outcomes. And that's kind of why I chose this as a, uh, as a, as a particular uh, abstract. I, I kind of make a hobby of collecting those types of studies because there are dozens and dozens and dozens of studies, that, you know, and again, looking at different outcomes, but looking at medical therapy and particularly contemporary medical therapy versus surgical intervention for certain outcomes. So this is one of those uh, potential studies. So anyways, we'll your new is, hobby, Gary, we'll get you a new hobby. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Golf? golf yeah, isn't golf enough? <laughs> you, you golf is a way that I actually punish myself. It's a way of life. Yeah, okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but so anyways, sorry. anyways, given these improvements, the authors of this study uh, really set out to assess its efficacy in stroke prevention, uh, the surgical bypass plus optimal medical therapy versus medical therapy alone. They had 324 symptomatic patients. So these are high-risk patients. These are patients who either had a TIA or a CVA in the, in the uh, distribution of the occluded artery. Uh, relatively young people, these were at average age of 57. About 80% were men. Obviously, 20% were not men. Uh, and um, 309 or 50, almost 95% actually completed the trial. So they had a really good uh, follow-up. Their primary outcome, uh, they looked at composite, what happened within 30 days and what happened within two years, basically. And they were looking at death and stroke uh, during this period of time. What they found when they looked at this composite um, outcome is that there's no difference between optimized medical therapy compared to surgery plus optimized medical therapy. Uh, what they found, however, is that in a post hoc analysis, that it was more likely that patients were going to have a stroke with surgery within 30 days and more likely that they're going to have a stroke uh, with med medical therapy within two years, but they kind of basically neutralized each other. And when they looked at multiple secondary outcomes, there really wasn't much of a difference. Um, and I think, you know, one of the uh, editorialists brings up the point that, you know, atherosclerosis is a systemic disease, right? And if you're just bypassing one little area, you, you haven't really addressed many other um, vascular territories that are, are potentially at risk. And this could have influenced some of the outcomes with regards to mortality and the like. So anyways, yet another study in my, um, in my collection of studies that suggests that medical therapy actually works for things that we think intuitively might benefit from surgery. Kate, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, as soon as you read that title, you sort of know that the answer is going to be that medical therapy is probably just as good. Um, as Gary said, you if you've been reading any of this kind of vascular literature for more than a minute, you know that for almost everything, aggressive medical therapy is 
going to be almost as good as, if not better, than uh, than surgical therapy for for nearly everything that we have. Um, and the question is just making sure that the, the that aggressive medical therapy is tolerable and affordable and accessible. Um, and sometimes that is challenging. And then it's it's uh, making sure that your surgeons agree that medical therapy is really an option. So they aren't, you know, in there sort of pitching patients on, well, just imagine what it could be like if you had, you know, your symptoms reversed, which just really isn't the case um, for a lot of these. But uh, sort of good to know. I'll be curious to see how this translates to uh, some of the stroke guidelines. Any final thoughts, Henry? Yeah, so... I- I think back on the early days of the carotid and arterectomy uh, studies that there was so much variability in the um, outcomes that, uh, that that 3% per year stroke risk on average w- became sort of the, the hallmark that if you're going to refer a patient for carotid and arterectomy, you need to refer them to a center or to a surgeon whose complication rate was less than 3%, okay, so that you would offset those potential harms. I don't know the data on the bypass surgery, if there's a similar set of variable outcomes by center, by surgeon, and whether or not we can use this for tailored recommendations. Because the short term, as you point out, the short term harms of stroke um, on the bypass side was higher, but it all washed out over two years. And is that a marker then of surgical, not, competence isn't the right word, but surgical expertise and experience? You know, in this particular study, just to address that, they the surgeons were um, were carefully selected. <laughs> so they had to have certain certain degree of credentials, experience, et cetera. I don't know what their criteria was, but they did mention that in the method section. Yeah, they stayed away from Joe's Carotid Surgery Shop in Chicago. (laughs) This is right next to Joe's Colonoscopy Shop. (laughs) Yeah. Right next to Joe's Italian Beef. Two for one, yeah. Get your Italian Beef and a colonoscopy. (laughs) Italian Beef could be your prep, man. Okay, enough of this. Enough of this nonsense. All right, the quiz. Which country, other than the U.S., includes colonoscopy as a primary screening option for average-risk adults? So the first option was Canada, and the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Services actually says, quote, we recommend not using colonoscopy as a screening test for colorectal cancer. They're pretty pretty bold group, and they, they really, really, really stick to the randomized control trial evidence. So all they recommend are FIT testing, fecal occult blood tests, and flex SIGs. The UK recommends FIT as an initial test, as do the Swiss, and as do most other countries in the world. That do that have a program for screening. The only other two countries that I'm aware of that offer colonoscopy as an optional primary screening method are Germany and Austria. Zum Wohl. Okay. Post. Anyway, um, it has been a delight uh, talking to you guys, and I hope uh, our listeners enjoyed the conversation today. Please uh, follow us on Twitter. We're at uh, hashtag primary care update. We post on Facebook, and uh, please share information about our podcast with your friends. Talk to you soon.